The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. If you're one of a kind, and I always felt that I was, in that I was very unconventional, my background very different from everybody else, I felt, uh, I suppose, a certain level of inferiority complex because I didn't go to university. Physically, I looked very different. Culturally, I was different. But what then happened was I realized that my difference was actually a strength because what brought to the table was a difference of approach because of my life experiences. And that uh, meant that I had a different outlook on life. It certainly meant that I um, was able to connect a lot more with, with clients. But the other thing, it, it made me memorable. I felt that if I walked into a room and I was the only person of, of color, um, then I was more likely to be remembered. So um, for me, it, it became uh, a distinguishing feature. And welcome listeners to another episode of The Hearing. It's great to have your company. I'm Yasmin. And my next guest is Trevor Sterling. Now you may have heard that name because Trevor has made the press, well, quite a few times in his career, but recently he was appointed the first black senior partner of one of the UK's 100 largest law firms. And it was really interesting talking to Trevor because he spoke about his journey into law. It was quite an unconventional route. And he also now has um, got many cases next to his name. The Westminster attack 2017, the Croydon tram crash victims he acted for, um, the co-lead lawyer on behalf of 60 Jimmy Savile child abuse victims. What I love um, about Trevor, well, there's many things actually. I, I do know Trevor personally as well through my work with the Law Society. But one of the things that really stands out about him is his great sense of responsibility. He is the uh, first black senior partner and he takes that really seriously. He realizes that he wants to inspire those people who come from a similar background to him. And he really feels passionately about this subject, about diversity, about leveling up, about helping people from untraditional roots into the law so that they can also achieve their dreams like he has. The Hearing. Welcome to the podcast, Trevor Sterling. Great to have your company. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to be joining you. Um, so, Trevor, first of all, congratulations for being made senior partner. When did that appointment happen? It was quite recently, wasn't it? Yeah, the appointment happened at the beginning of May, um, so it was an election. Um, yeah, and yet I was absolutely delighted to have been um, elected and to become the first black senior partner in a top 100 um, UK firm. Yeah. Really great achievement. And Trevor, where I wanted to start is your route into the legal profession, because I know you've had uh, an unconventional route, shall we say. Um, and could you just talk us through that, how, how you became to be a, a solicitor? Yeah, well, it, it, unconventional in, in many ways um, and lucky in many ways as well, mm. um, because it actually started with me having underachieved at school. Um, and that, that was really because I went to a very difficult school. Um, there was a, a fair amount of, of racism. It was that kind of time um, back in the uh, uh, early 80s. Uh, and so I left school not really with any idea of what I wanted to, wanted to do. Um, and I met with a careers officer 
who essentially gave me three job options. One was a tennis racket stringer, one was a warehouseman, <laughs> uh, and one was a um, outdoor clerk for a law firm. And I took that oh. option by pure chance because I quite like the idea of being indoors and outdoors. And as an outdoor clerk, you travel up to court and issue mm. documents, etc. And so I went for an interview with a firm which was called Rollies and Blewitts back then, changed to Rowley mm. Ashworth thereafter. Um, and um, was fortunate enough to get the job. And uh, having got the job, I, I, I stayed at that firm for um, 28 years, believe it or not. Wow. So it was some journey. Uh, and yeah. the qualification really was that about a year in, I really developed this passion uh, and a want to become um, a lawyer. And mm. so I started doing the legal executive course, um, which I did in an unconventional way because I did it any way I could, uh, correspondence courses, evening courses, day release, etc. Um, mm. Qualified as a legal executive after many years and then uh, became a solicitor having had a year off to do the finals. Mm. So that's interesting. So at school you had no interest necessarily, maybe you didn't have exposure to law and, and what that actually involved. It was just when you became an outdoor clerk, you, did you become interested in, in what the lawyers were doing? Is that is that what piqued your interest? Yeah, I loved reading their letters, um, mm. uh, and I loved the fact that they were helping people, um, and I loved the fact that clients felt rewarded by the work that they did. So for me, I, I guess it was a, a calling that I hadn't anticipated, but once I, I, I got into law, I, I just loved it. Mm. And did you have people encouraging you along the way? It sounds like that teacher didn't give you many options but in at Rowley's um, was there encouragement to pursue the legal exec um, route? Yeah it, it was a response to passion it's, it's, it's funny isn't it because um, I, I was a, a, a very young innocent um, man I guess in some ways I think I still am <laughs> and um, but I was really passionate and the people around me responded to that passion so uh, you know, they didn't actively say to me, you should go on and, and uh, study. But because I wanted to, they they were very happy to, to support me to do it. So I was really fortunate because they gave mm. me the time out if I needed a day release and time off for exams and things. Mm. Um, so I, I was just, it was a trade union firm, so they had a certain a difference in philosophy, I guess. And that was something mm. else I was really uh, keen on the idea of you know uh, collective responsibility and uh, solidarity and all those kind of things so um, mm. yeah it was a response to my passion i think mm -hmm. i yeah i know the firm well because i used to work as um at thompson's that your competitors so i i do know that kind of philosophy um that happens in in those kind of firms so you mentioned um you're the first black senior partner of one of the uk's um, 100, 100 largest law firms. And I read a quote, Trevor, which really piqued my interest, and I'd love for you to expand on this. You said in an article, the first half of your career, you were very conscious that you were black, and the second half, you celebrated it. What, what did you mean by that? I would love to unpack that, and, and how did that play out? So, so a difference can be uh, both a positive and a negative. If you're one of a kind, and I always felt that I was, 
uh, in that I was very unconventional, my background very different from everybody else. I felt, uh, I suppose, a certain level of inferiority complex because I didn't go to university. Mm. Um, of course, just physically, I looked very different. Culturally, I was different in terms of, you know, my um, upbringing wasn't about going to uh, pubs and things like that. So um, I, I was really conscious of, of my difference. And, and in those times, there was a, a lot of um, racism, not necessarily within the law, but um, mm. Certainly, society more generally. So it's something that I think most people would be conscious if they were from my background back then. Um, uh, but what then happened was, as I became more confident, um, as I had more belief in myself, what I realised that my difference was actually a strength, because mm. what I brought to the table was a difference of approach because of my life experiences, and that. Uh, meant that I had a different outlook on life. It certainly meant that I um, was able to connect a lot more with with clients. Clients obviously are from all different walks of life, and so I really felt empowered by my difference. But the other thing, it, it made me memorable. I mm. felt that if I walked into a room and I was the only person of, of colour, um, then I was more likely to be remembered. So um, for me, it, it became. Uh, a distinguishing feature things that are rare are generally valuable uh, commodities and, and I, I began to start believing that me being different was um, you know an element of rareness, rareness was attached to that and therefore it was a valuable thing uh, and not a burden. Mm, mm. And I know diversity is something you're very passionate about and you, you've got involved with many things um, in respect of diversity. And, and the question I, I have for you is, you know, how can we improve diversity in the legal profession? Have you got some views on, on that? Well, we, we have to make sure that the law is seen as accessible to all. And it's really important. So um, encouraging diverse um, routes into the profession, not looking down on those that uh, have different qualifications, whether they be legal executives or, or, or otherwise, is really important. Uh, and I think um, it's important for people like me who have come through uh, in, in a very unusual way uh, to be seen and to be vocal because mm. that encourages other people to believe that they can um, make it through. Um, and, and as I say, it's my job, having got through, to make sure that there aren't sticky floors or glass ceilings. Um, and that's something which I, I'm, I'm really determined to do because I think it's, I think it's a, a dual approach. Law firms have to recognise that they have to take positive action to, to encourage people from different backgrounds to enter the profession. And those from different backgrounds have to be confident that they can succeed. Um, and I'm really pleased with my firm because my firm um, haven't just said you know, I am a senior partner, but they've recognised that it's important to me to be able to say, you know, I'm the first black senior partner, because what mm. that does is it gives a lot of people great encouragement and belief. So making sure we are accessible as a profession um, means that all uh, those that are involved in law have a role to play, not just those people from my background, but everybody has a role to play to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to into what is a, what is a marvellous profession. Mm. 
And what are the main barriers at the moment, do you think, for, for diverse talent getting through? Is it, is it what you've just said about, you know, perhaps their unconventional routes and, and people might be a bit snobby about um, other, other routes coming into um, the profession and not necessarily going to university? What are the main barriers, do you think? Well, I think the legal profession is still one of those professions that prides itself on being highly academic. Um, oh. And so there still is um, a, a lot of favouring of those that go to, you know, Russell Group universities. Um, and there still is recognition of the more conventional symbols of achievement. So if you've got a first or a 2-1, the, the, the reality is, though, that if... Um, you've come from a difficult background and somehow you've managed to rise above adversity. You might only have got two, two but that's some journey you've been on. Yeah. Uh, and that is as, as good as getting a first from 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 Oxford. Um, and, and so I think it's, it's really important that we understand that if you're from socially disadvantaged backgrounds in particular, you might not have gone to a Russell Group University but my, what, what you'll have gone through to have achieved what you've achieved mm. yeah, is, is incredible and deserves uh, certainly opportunity, but deserves recognition, actually, mm. um, because, because it's a tougher way to, to make it through. Yeah. So it's kind of, I, I think a lot of firms are looking at contextual recruitment, aren't they? It's just what you said, looking at the context in how somebody has got that qualification and what um, you know, obstacles or challenges in their life that they, they have to endure along the way. Yeah, we, we don't all have the same starting point. I mean, my parents came from uh, Jamaica in the late 1950s. They were part of the Windrush generation. So they didn't have the know-how really to steer me to go to university, etc. Um, and, and therefore, I've really had to learn on the ground myself um, to be able to, to achieve what I've achieved. Uh, and that the fact that I've had to do that and it's been harder uh, must surely mean that I should be recognised if somehow um, I've done it. Um, mm. And I think that's really, really important. And but the, one of the one of the crucial things is that those around me, if they're different, i.e., if they are not um, uh, from socially disadvantaged backgrounds, won't necessarily know what it is to be from a socially disadvantaged background. They won't know what disadvantage I've faced. So I've got to be able to speak to my life experiences to make people aware of mm. the struggles that many people have so that they add value to, to their achievement. Mm -hmm. Well, you've certainly been involved with some huge um, cases. I mean, I know your role now is your chair of the Personal Injury and Clinical Negligence Division at your firm um, and involved in major trauma cases. And um, I can see... You know, the list in front of me is very impressive. The Westminster attack 2017, Croydon tram crash victims. Um, you acted for, for some of those. You were the co-lead lawyer on behalf of 60 Jimmy Savile child abuse victims. Some really um, huge cases in UK history. And, and I just would, would like to ask you, have you got any standout moments in your legal career in relation to a case that you were involved with? In terms of standout moments, there's one particular case which was both the highlight and the low light, if you like, in my career. Um, and that was I ran a case which involved suicide. 
Uh, it was an employer's liability case where the individual suffered an accident at work, became depressed, and then took his own life. Uh, it, it was a very personal case because I had been with him the day before he committed suicide. Oh, gosh. Um, and so um, it was something which had a you know profound effect on me. Uh, unbeknown to me at the time, I mean, he had actually planned his suicide and he came to see me really just as to make sure that all the loose ends were tied. Uh, I wasn't aware at the time. Mm. But, but the law in relation to employer's liability suicide was effectively that if you took your own life, it was down to you uh, and you, you weren't entitled to uh, compensation for all of the losses as a result of, of, of the death. Uh, even though the death was caused by the severe depression mm. uh, resulting from the accident injuries. Uh, and so um, we, we you know, took the case on um, to the, the High Court, uh, and it was the first case of its type since 1957. Gosh. So it meant having to review the case law going back to the early 1900s, uh, in fact. Um, and so... It, it, it meant a tremendous amount because actually it was a case which changed the law and is a case which is studied by law students now because of the really significant ramifications uh, on particularly on, on causation. Mm. Um, so I highlight because ironically we lost in the high court, which is why I said it was a, a low point, and I remember sitting in the High Court feeling devastated, but mm. um, a highlight because we went on to the House of Lords uh, back when it was the House of Lords um, and won. Uh, mm. So uh, in 2008, uh, I became you know, victor in the, in the House of Lords. And I think, in, in certainly in terms of my area of law, that uh, I am probably one of the only... Uh, black lawyers to have ever gone on to the House of Laws and to, to win um, in that way. So, um, yeah, a, a really incredible landmark, something which I'm really, really proud of. Mm, yeah, you should be. I wonder, if, are you, can you get in touch with that teacher who told you to pursue those other um, career paths? Because oh, I wonder if they, they know about, you know, you've, you've made history really with that landmark case. Well, interesting enough, I, I think it was a careers advisor, and he was he was quite an elderly chap, so I suspect he may not still be with us. But one of the, the, the magic uh, elements of Facebook is that I was able to get in touch with a couple of my teachers. Um, mm. uh, and I, I wrote to one of them who, whose daughter approached me to say that um, he was unwell, very unwell. Uh, and I wrote a letter. Uh, and I explained to him what I'd gone on to do with my career, and I expressed thanks to him uh, because I really am appreciative of the great efforts and influence of, of teachers. And she read that letter to him whilst he was unwell, uh, very unwell in bed, uh, and she wrote back to me and said how incredibly moved he was, um, not just because of the impact he'd had, but because I acknowledged uh, his contribution uh, to to my journey, so you know it, it, it's something which um, touches me actually that mm. there are so many teachers that have that kind of influence, um, and, and we don't get the opportunity to say thank you to them. 
Oh, that's a lovely thing to do. Um, I think that's probably inspired other people to write to their teachers. We always remember the, the good teachers and the, the ones that probably said maybe some negative comments and they stick with you sometimes. But it's, it's lovely to, to, uh, to, to write to, to someone to show appreciation. I'm sure he loved that. It's really touching. Um, so what I wanted to ask you as well is I, I know um, we talked about diversity um, and, and the fact that you're celebrating the fact that uh, you said in your career, the second half, you're celebrating the fact that you're black. And, and I know a lot of the work you do outside of um, work is connected to these issues. Um, so I know that you are um, a, a, the chair of the Mary Seacole Trust. Um, could you tell us a little bit about Mary Seacole and, and what work you do in that capacity? Yeah, so Mary Seacole was a, was a Jamaican uh, born out of slavery in uh, around 1805. Um, she responded to um, the Crimean War effort. I mean, her story is incredibly colourful. She was an entrepreneur, but she was somebody that um, nursed whilst in Jamaica and uh, responded to uh, various different um, issues in Jamaica supporting those that suffered from cholera and yellow fever, etc., using herbal medicines. But when the Crimean War broke out, she came over to Britain um, and then she felt that she was rejected. Um, there were a number of uh, nurses being sent officially to Crimea, led by Florence Nightingale. And so Mary went out to the Crimea, which is now the current day uh, Ukraine, and set up the British Hotel, which was place where she would sell uh, comforts but she would also treat um, soldiers uh, and nurse them and nurse the sick and the wounded um, and she spent some time doing that during the Crimean War and when the war came to an end she came back to Britain in fact she lost her money uh, and became bankrupt for a period she was incredibly famous uh, in, in England back then in fact they held a four-day festival to raise funds for her because she uh, was bankrupt for that period. Uh, and when she died, she was forgotten and fell from the history books, even though she's buried uh, in West London. And so the Mary Seacole Trust, uh, um, back uh, about 12, 14, about 15, 16 years ago, in fact, set up a campaign. Uh, the charity was known as the Mary Seacole Memorial Statue Appeal to, to uh, have a statue erected of Mary uh, and following a 12-year campaign and over half a million pounds, a statue was erected, a beautiful statue at St. Thomas's uh, in London, mm. and became the first statue of a first bronze statue of a named black female anywhere in the UK. All other statues of females were effectively not named, so slaves, if you like. Mm. Um, and, it, and it made history. Uh, and so I became the chair at the point of the unveiling, taken over from Lord Soley, and um, what we do now is we use Mary as a role model. We promote social equality. We run competitions in schools to inspire young children. Uh, we uh, are working with uh, various organizations, including the NHS, uh, to ensure diversity, more diversity uh, in leadership. We've uh, funded an installation at the Florence Nightingale Museum so school children can go and learn more about Mary. So. It's been a, f a fantastic opportunity to use Mary's story as a role model, a, a woman mm. who 
was a woman of colour who went to the Crimea at the age of 50. Uh, she was an entrepreneur, she was an author. Um, so she's just an incredible lady, really strong uh, lady. And so um, she's my inspiration. I use her story to inspire others. Mm, fantastic. And I know um, you also, and I've got to check this out, you're on Radio London with Vanessa Feltz reviewing the papers. That's something else you do outside work. What, how did that come about? Uh, it, it came about because I, I was uh, invited on to speak about the Croydon tram uh, uh, disaster and um, we just got, got on very well. So <laughs> Vanessa invited me back uh, to review the papers and I now review the papers every uh, about once uh, a month, which is probably one of the scariest things that I do. Um, <laughs> very rewarding. Yeah, is it on legal issues or just general, just news, news stories? It's anything, yeah, anything oh that's goodness. in the, the newspapers. So I have to get up at about 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> I buy up all the papers, which surprises um, the local news agent vendor. Um, and then I read through them, pick out the, the best of the stories, about five or six of them. Uh, and then I speak to them and she'll ask me uh, any question that comes to mind yeah. um, and I have to, to, um, to respond. A lot of the stories I speak to are uh, things that are close to my heart, so uh, perhaps around diversity or other mm. social equality challenges, but it literally can be anything. Gosh, that keeps you on your toes, doesn't it? That's terrifying. That sounds terrifying to me. But how brilliant that you can you can actually just pick the stuff that you want to talk about, and you've you've got all these listeners as well. It's wonderful. And um, so, where I wanted to finish, um, Trevor, because this, this, I can see a theme running through this. Diversity really is a huge passion of yours. How can people be an ally to these causes, to promoting diversity? How can they support this cause? So diversity means many things to many people. Um, yeah. We're all individuals and we all have uh, differences. For me, the importance of diversity is effectively to level up, uh, to, to make sure that we all have equal opportunities and that there's an equity of outcomes. So um, the way people can get involved is, first of all, to recognize uh, difference, um, to give those that are socially disadvantaged to, to give them a level of advantage. Um, so if you're an employer, to make sure you uh, open up the forms of entry into your business. Uh, if you are uh, somebody who's involved in society more generally, to give support and encouragement and confidence to those that are from socially disadvantaged backgrounds by mentoring. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et so there are there are many ways that we can all help each other, um, but the, I would say probably one of the most important things is to listen to the life experiences of those that are socially disadvantaged, mm. and then it's possible to understand the causes, the, the the challenges and the issues, and then find solutions. It's really important for everybody to to just understand that we do not all have the same level of advantage in society, but we all have a responsibility to ensure that we can level up. And if I can just say one of the slogans I, I use is that mm. um, if we aspire to climb the ladder, if we achieve it, then we must become the ladder. Mm. 
Trevor Sterling, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your story. And I'm sure um, lots of people will be inspired by your journey and your take on life and everything you've achieved. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. The Hearing. Thank you so much for listening. And as ever, we would love to hear your feedback. Like and subscribe. And also, if you've got any thoughts, if you think about topics you want us to explore, or maybe you want a guest to be interviewed and you're dying for them to be interviewed, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.